Hello, this is Guardian Daily for Monday the 14th of December. I'm Jonathan Watts in Copenhagen, where developing nations say their leaders may not even turn up unless a climate change deal is in place by Thursday at the latest. And ahead of Gordon Brown's arrival here in the Danish capital, Tony Blair has already jetted in and called on negotiators and governments to get moving. To make sure that everyone is on the train going in the same direction. Some will be at the front, some will be at the back. Some will pay more than others. But together, we should be on board for a new destination for the global economy. And I'm Douglas Hardy in London. Also coming up in today's show, how Christmas shoppers are responding to the recession. Well, I do the spending. I do all the Christmas shopping. My husband doesn't spend, but I just do all the spending. I haven't actually bought any Christmas shopping. I've got my mum to do it all. With Labour fighting back in the polls, could the government be preparing an early general election? If, in fact, the the election is not as early as David Cameron is currently claiming, he can then uh, say that Gordon Brown is frightened for it and has run away from the polls as he did uh, famously very soon after being uh, appointed Labour leader. In Afghanistan, the Taliban prevent a turbine from delivering much-needed electricity to the south of the country. And we go to Cornwall to witness the Battle of Battery Rocks Beach. Every, every time people of Penzance have been asked what they think of this, the majority of people against the scheme has ranged from 66% to 98%. Guardian Daily from guardian.co.uk First of all, though, the latest news and a look at the papers with Bill Overton. The Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has had to spend the night in hospital with a broken nose. He was attacked in Milan while signing autographs after a political rally. He was struck suddenly in the face with a metal souvenir. A man with a history of mental illness has been charged with assault. As the Climate Change Summit enters its second week in Copenhagen, ministers have started to arrive, but there are still major difficulties in the negotiations. African, Chinese and Indian delegations have warned their leaders won't take part unless an effective deal on emission cuts and long-term finance are likely. The Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth is announcing an initiative to deal with roadside bombs in Afghanistan later. They're one of the biggest causes of deaths to our soldiers there. He's giving £150 million to provide extra training in combating the bombs and a new unit to process intelligence. The Manchester United and Wales wing at Ryan Giggs has won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year award. He also won the Professional Footballers Association award this year and said last night he was shocked. He's made 800 appearances and scored 150 goals for his club. In the BBC award, world champion racing driver Jensen Button came second and world champ heptathlete Jessica Ennis came third. In the X-Factor final, Geordie Joe McKeldry, an 18-year-old student, beat Ollie Murs in the final. It was the second year in a row for a winner by fellow Geordie Cheryl Cole, who was there to hug her boy, and that's the story on the front page of the tabloids. The picture in the mirror and the sun is of Joe and Cheryl congratulating each other. Thanks a million, says the mirror. Joe to make sweet music with Cheryl. That's in the star. And the sun reckons it's tinsel tune. Simon's £5 million Hollywood plan for Joe. Awaiting the winner, it says, after what all the papers expect is going to be his inevitable Christmas number one. In the other papers, the front page picture is of the bloodied face of Silvio Berlusconi after he was attacked in Milan. But otherwise, the lead stories are all different. The Financial Times says the Greek government's been warned to make heavy cuts in its budget deficit 
or it may have to default on its borrowed loans. The Express looks closer to home at the plight of families who can no longer borrow money from banks under the credit squeeze. The paper says that other money lenders of so-called payday loans are charging up to 2,000% interest. Our paper leads with the story of a key Afghan project stalled by the Taliban, about which we'll hear more shortly. Uh, the Times has received confidential documents about Iran. It reports they show the countries working on a key final component of a nuclear bomb, the trigger. And the sports page is all focused on Arsenal's win over Liverpool yesterday. For the Mirror, the story is Rafa, how low can we go? Thrown at the Liverpool manager. But everybody else is interested in how Arsenal managed to turn things round after going 1-0 down in the first half. But we say Arsenal revived by Wenger's dressing down. The Mail says he shamed his flops back into the title race with fighting talk. But the Express says it was much more like a rocket. And the Times says Wenger's dressing room rant amounted to a complete screamer. There's more news and sport throughout the day on guardian.co.uk. I'm Jonathan Watts, The Guardian's environment correspondent for Asia, and I'm at the UN Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. So, today is the start of the final few days of talks here in the Danish capital, which are aimed at drawing up new international legislation. The problem is, as The Guardian has recently found out, uh, there may be even less time than we first thought we had. It had been hoped the heads of state, when they fly in on Thursday and Friday, uh, will bang their heads together in late-night negotiations and crank out a deal, because there's still a lot of differences between the uh, developed and the developing worlds. But what's now emerged is that uh, many of the developing nations are saying they don't want to be strong-armed into a deal at the last moment. What they want is everything to be finalised, or just about finalised, before the leaders arrive. Uh, And that means the next one or two days are basically when all the important decisions, most of the heavy lifting, uh, will have to be done as they try to uh, get over all the big gaps they've got on financing, on the amount of uh, emissions cuts, and all those other issues uh, where there is still a great deal of differences. Yesterday, uh, Tony Blair uh, was speaking in Copenhagen and I went along to listen to what he had to say uh, about the prospects of a deal. My simple message today is this. There can be a deal at Copenhagen. There should be a deal. It will not be all that everyone wants, uh, but it was never going to be. We should not make the best the enemy of the good. What we should do is take the most ambitious level of commitment to cutting emissions, both from developed and developing nations that is on the table now, we should accumulate it, make it the basis of the agreement, add to it in ways that we know can make a difference within the next 10 or 15 years, especially in areas like deforestation, and get the thing moving. Kyoto was a treaty to make a point. It was, frankly, less successful at making a policy. Copenhagen is where we need to make a policy. So it's time to lift this issue out of the realms of a campaign and put it firmly within a framework of a credible, achievable policy for change. That was Tony Blair basically saying that a climate compromise is possible, but it isn't likely to be enough to do what scientists say is necessary to avoid uh, very dangerous levels of global warming. 
Of course, many of the recent headlines have revolved around the huge number of arrests here over the weekend, where more than a thousand people were detained. The trouble flared after a day of largely peaceful protests, where tens of thousands of people marched through the capital to try to put pressure on world leaders to come up with a global climate pact. One of those in the crowd was British actor Helen Baxendale. If um, individuals all start pressurising our governments and saying we, we want and demand this change, that's what will eventually force through the changes that are needed. It's not absolutely pressing to us, but it's very pressing to parts, poorer parts of the world where it's actually having an effect now. As this city becomes a forum for the way the world runs itself for decades to come, a growing number of business people, politicians and, of course, environmental activists are here. The activists cover every kind of campaign and cause you can dream of. We spoke to one of the leaders of the International Forum on Globalisation, Dr Vandana Shiva. In the Himalaya, we are seeing climate catastrophe on a very large scale. I've just finished one year of participatory research on the impact of climate change. 70% of the sources of water in my region have disappeared. In the high altitude desert of Latak, a desert is having flash floods and wiping out villages. We cannot afford inaction. If the government sleep, let the citizens rise and show the way to our governments. So things are already hotting up in Copenhagen and there will be a lot more action in the days ahead, particularly on Wednesday and Thursday when the heads of state of the major emitters, the major economies, come here to finalise the deal that everyone hopes will be the outcome of this week in Copenhagen. And you can follow all the news from Copenhagen throughout the week at guardian.co.uk slash environment. And also on The Guardian's website today. Reaction to that X Factor result and a look ahead to what's almost certain to be the Christmas number one at guardian.co.uk slash music. Deborah Orr interviews the Shadow Minister for Women, Theresa May, at guardian.co.uk slash politics. And our top 10 Christmas recipes at guardian.co.uk slash life and style. With Christmas just a few days away now, retailers, both online and traditional, are pulling out all the stops to get us to spend. And the latest figures from John Lewis show that the retailer has had its best sales week ever. This comes at the end of a year which has seen Britain battle recession and rising unemployment. So with higher taxes and cuts in public spending on the cards, whoever wins the election next year, just how much are we prepared to shell out on Christmas this year? Well, I've come down to Oxford Street here in central London to find out. Excuse me, ladies. I wonder if I could ask you about your Christmas shopping this year. Would you be spending a little bit less this year than normal? Less. less. Definitely less. Why is that? Plus, we haven't got it to spend it. <laughs> Not specially, no. About the same as usual. So you'll be spending pretty much the same as you would under normal circumstances? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> as little as possible. I don't want to spend Why are you spending as little as possible? Because we haven't got any money. Okay. We're poor. Yeah, we've definitely cut back. Why is that? Why? Well, obviously job, jobs, isn't it? And things like job security and things like that. You're a bit... So you're worried about it. It's affecting how, how you behave in this Christmas? Oh, definitely, yeah. Okay, thank About you. the same. About the same. Yes. What's the average you spend on a present, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Um, 
Well, I give my girls up to 40 to 50 pounds. I've got two daughters, I give them 50 pounds each. But I always get them little bits of stocking fillers. Yeah, probably the but same. But that's about the me. same. Yeah. And what about the rest of your family? Have they sort of mentioned if they're going to be spending less at all? Well, I do the spending. I do all the Christmas shopping. My husband doesn't spend, but I just do all the spending. I haven't actually bought any Christmas shopping. I've got my mum to do it all. <laughs> there you go. Genuinely. And do you think she's spending less? No. What about no. among your friends? Have they commented on what they're doing? I haven't really noticed that anybody's spending any less, I'm sorry. No, not really. Just the same as what I would do other years. So, you, you know, the economic situation is oh, really yeah, affecting... Oh, yeah, I know. Well, it is, but, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm tight. Do you think you'll be spending uh, less, perhaps, this year? Hopefully so, yes. I retired this year, so I won't have so much money, so yes. So you, you are sort of cutting back, are you? Yes, definitely, yes. What will you be cutting back on, primarily? Uh, other grown-ups, really. Grandchildren and that, and we'll just concentrate on those. A lot. An awful lot. <laughs> Too much money that I haven't actually got. <laughs> but it's good fun. We've come here from Holland and it's much cheaper here to shop for us because of the exchange rates. And in general, do you, are you spending less this Christmas or more? Uh, more than last year, because last year we didn't went to London. <laughs> Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Well, we leave Oxford Street and those Christmas shoppers now and head just down the road to Westminster, where the talk is currently of a general election in March rather than May. The Conservatives claim Labour would prefer to cut and run rather than have to stage a budget on the eve of the election. I asked our political editor Patrick Winter why David Cameron's been talking up an early poll. Well, I think there's two things, really. One is that uh, it's a form of discipline upon your own party if you're able to remind them that an election is drawing near. Therefore, anyone who wants to start complaining about some aspect of policy or the way candidates are being selected are reminded that that's not a useful thing to do if the, the election is just around the corner. So it's a bit of a discipline you can impose upon people. And the second is that if, uh, in fact, the, the election is not as early as David Cameron is currently claiming, he can then uh, say that Gordon Brown is frightened for it and has run away from the polls as he did uh, famously very soon after being... Uh, appointed Labour leader. Although, in fact, it could possibly be David Cameron who should be frit as he sees uh, his lead uh, becoming narrower. Well, the polls are in a very strange position at the moment. There is probably a a small trend towards a a narrowing of the polls, and I think Gordon Brown would say that the electorate are now beginning to look on politics no longer as a referendum on him, but as a choice between the two parties, and that therefore, you know, People are changing their attitudes marginally. I mean, I suppose essentially once Christmas is out of the way, whenever the election is, uh, you know, once we get to the new year, we're in the run-up to it. Is there anything in it for Gordon Brown to call it early? Well, the, the one argument for calling it early is that there is, um, as we've seen with the PBR, to have to make another budget statement, which is what he would be required to do if the election was held um, in May, may not be the right thing for him in the sense that the uh, he'd have to go into further detail about how he's going to cut the the massive deficit and there would be a further reminder that uh, taxes are going to rise. So, so a lot of the economic news isn't um, going to be brilliant in that budget statement. So if he could um, avoid making that, that would be to his advantage. On the other hand, the longer he leaves it, the more people will notice that the economy is on a slow mend. And uh, if you look at the way people vote, probably the most 
single most important factor is um, what they feel is their own personal economic prospects and if they're on the rise that might make them feel well better disposed to Gordon Brown and to Labour and to feel that he's um, weathered them, weathered a storm and helped them through a very rough patch. So were you a betting man, Patrick? <laughs> Would it be March or May? <laughs> I think it's going to be May and um, uh, unfortunately I don't think I get very much money for that because I think that's the, the view of the bookies as well at the moment. Our political editor, Patrick Winter. I'm Douglas Hardy, still to come on Guardian Daily. He gathered together disciples who took off the shoes and the socks and paddled around in the mud and the filth of the ice-so-called battery rocks. First, though, to Afghanistan, where it's emerged that a hydroelectric turbine delivered to a dam in Helmand province last year is being mothballed without ever being used. The turbine was dragged there by British troops at huge cost through Taliban heartlands, and at the time the daring mission was hailed a success story. The problem is, since then, the security situation has deteriorated and the road to the dam is too dangerous to use, so the huge amounts of cement needed to install the turbine can't be delivered. Here's John Boone in Kabul. They're going to need about 900 tonnes of cement to be delivered to this dam, which is in a very kind of remote area of northern Helmand. Uh, There's not much there except for the dam and some poppy fields. And the problem is to get that cement in will require all the insurgents, all the Taliban that have been attracted to the dam over the years because of the uh, American ongoing reconstruction project and also the presence of British troops. It's essentially entirely uh, surrounded and Um, constantly besieged by insurgents. Now, to get through that ring of siege uh, would require a major security operation to open up the road, which would have to be cleared for about six months for all this cement to be brought into the site. And USAID, that's the United States Agency for International Development, which is paying for this entire project, has said, we just can't do this without a security operation. Uh, The contract is going to expire in just a few months. So they are busily packing this turbine away, the the disassembled parts of it away, and creating an inventory uh, in the hope that one day if security is ever good enough, uh, this can be finally installed uh, some 30 years after the hydroelectric part of this dam was, was first built. This story essentially then encapsulates what critics of aid to Afghanistan point out, is that, you know, we've spent vast uh, sums of money, put uh, put our personnel at risk for this project, and it is uh, essentially useless. Well, it is a, a particularly telling example just at the moment, because international aid, particularly aid from the United States, has been heavily criticised of late. Um, according to academics who've studied this, they've looked at it and they say, well, actually just throwing money at a problem quite often makes the situation worse in when there's an ongoing insurgency in that it can quite often create added local rivalries and, uh, and, and, and complicate an already violent situation. The other criticism of these kind of mega projects involving many, many millions of dollars is that when you try and do it in areas of the south and the east of Afghanistan where the insurgency is at its um, height, and where it's very difficult even to even for civilians to move around, let alone um, get a lot, start doing development and dragging in hundreds of tons of cement and so forth to these big projects, then quite simply they just don't happen. There's all this 
money that's been earmarked for these projects, and they just sit there. The money is stuck. And various people, including, interestingly, the, the United Nations chief in Afghanistan recent months have been saying, we should just stop this. We should take some of this money that is sitting stuck in places in the south where it can't be spent, and we should put it in the north and the west where security conditions are, are much more uh, permissive and there's much more potential to get out there and make a difference on the ground. And also, as it happens, there's quite a lot of uh, quite good investments in the north and the west, particularly involving um, large-scale uh, mineral mining and so forth, which could really benefit from the sort of mega bucks expenditure that the United States is capable of. And that report was from John Boone, our reporter in Kabul. Back here, a proposed new ferry link between the Scilly Isles and Penzance in Cornwall has inspired a musical battle on YouTube, with local musicians posting songs both for and against the development. There is a more serious side to this story too, though. A local councillor has allegedly received death threats about the proposal. Stephen Morris now reports on the Battle of Battery Rocks Beach. Battery Rocks, I love you. Battery This is Battery Rocks Beach in Cornwall. Not the most beautiful beach in the world, admittedly. As its name suggests, it's a bit rocky and grey, but it does have fantastic views. Over there, St Michael's Mount behind me, the fishing port of Newlyn, its lights just twinkling in the dusk. There's a fierce debate raging about this beach at the moment. Plans are afoot to build a new passenger and freight terminal for the Isles of Scilly here. Critics say it will ruin a lovely spot. Supporters of the new development say it's necessary to keep the Isles of Scilly 30 miles or so off the mainland viable. Opposing factions have written and released folk songs putting their points of view across, or all, all very Cornish. But it's getting nasty too. Friends and neighbours have fallen out. Police have investigated death threats. All sorts of legal action is planned. In the yacht pub, some critics of the scheme have gathered. Uh, my name is Mike Sagar Fenton from Penzance. It's controversial because uh, they have uh, obtained a very large amount of EC money and uh, they're proposing to spend that on what appears to locals to be a very large and impractical boat, which won't do the trick. Um, The boat that they've chosen won't fit in the harbours of either the Isles of Scilly or Penzance, and so they're now proposing to spend the rest of the money on um, completely changing both harbours. Um, and in doing so, they're going to mess up a very, very crucial area of Penzance's seafront by putting a goods yard and a passenger terminal bang in the middle of it, right in the middle of one of the finest views of, of the bay and uh, a place of recreation you know, that we all find very precious. Your name, please. Hi, I'm Jeremy Skonker. Just tell me why that spot is so important to local people. Um, well, apart from being a very beautiful spot um, and with a lot of wildlife there, you can actually see seals there quite frequently as well as a lot of other creatures. Every, every time people of Penzance have been asked what they think of this, they've, uh, the majority of people against the scheme has ranged from 66% to 98% actually, and uh, including um, a massive uh, write-in campaign against 
the applications when they've been put before them. Uh, a public meeting which filled the town hall to overflowing, in which only three people present were in favour of the scheme. People, I do believe, have been very offended because they feel that um, a very beautiful part of their land is being taken out of their hands by a process that appears to be less than democratic. And that report came from Stephen Morris in Cornwall. Well, that's it for this edition of Guardian Daily. I'm Douglas Hardy, the producers Phil Maynard and Tim May. Goodbye for now.